0: Welcome to the See Me Now Special podcast. I'm your host Kelsey Coleman here with my co-host Caitlin Birdsall. and we are joined today by world-renowned archaeologist and assistant professor of archaeology John Seebach. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, this, you know, your your research has just been seen all over all over the country and beyond. I mean, you've been doing really important work. Can you give us a little bit of background about what you've been working on this past year and previously? I think you started in uh, 2019, was it? 2016, 2016, actually. Yeah, it's
1: been a while. Um, right now, I'm working on trying to locate the cemetery um, on the former grounds of a residential boarding school for Indigenous children that was open here in Grand Junction from 1886 to 1911. And after the school closed, the cemetery and its location were lost to history. Um, There are no documents showing where that cemetery is. And so I'm out there trying to find it or trying to undercover any document that shows me where it is.
2: And can I ask what made you... Start this research. What got you into it? Was it, you know, somebody reached out to you? Was it just through your work that you found it? What what got you involved in this type of research?
1: Well, as a North American archaeologist, I'm um, intensely interested in Native American ways of life and Native American cultures in general. And as a result of that, I kind of keep my finger on some of the things that are happening across Indian country, as well as some of the issues of importance to Native communities. And one of those is healing generational trauma from these, from these boarding schools. And so I knew prior to any of this that there was one of these boarding schools here in town. And um, in 2016, a piece of legislation was signed um, by the state wherein what the, the campus is now, which is the Grand Junction Regional Center, uh, a medical and residential facility for uh, profoundly disabled uh, individuals, that the campus was going to be closed, the residents moved off of the campus, and the campus sold, and um, sold basically to private, um, private people, private concerns. And um, there was no mention in that piece of legislation that, there, that the, the property had historic value and historic importance, much less that there is a, a lost cemetery on the grounds, and so um, I began to write letters to um, legislators and tell them about what was out there. And as part of that, I began to, to speak with uh, tribal cultural representatives from various tribes. And uh, it became very important to everybody involved that we find this cemetery with the idea that the, the property would eventually be sold. So literally, I got involved because of a newspaper report in the Daily Sentinel that this piece of legislation had been signed, literally.
2: And I'm glad that you mentioned the local individuals that you're working with, because that was actually going to be one of my next questions. So once you came across this piece of legislation um, and you started your research, I was curious if you did bring in local indigenous people. I would assume so. But can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Really, all that work has been done more recently recently. The earliest part of the work, I was mostly just talking with legislators uh, from Denver, and particularly those from the Joint Budget Committee. And um, I even was on a tour of the facility with members of the Joint Budget Committee and kind of showing them the old historic buildings and things of that nature. And then as the project began to develop, I reached out to all tribes um, who had pupils at the at the boarding school. And this could only happen after I had gone to the National Archives in Washington, DC, and was able to get my hands on um, complete student rosters from various years uh, on the campus of, of the campus. And once I had those those names and their affiliated tribes, I knew who I needed to reach out to. So really, that began in earnest in probably 2017, 2018.
0: I think really anyone who pays attention to media knows, like, this has been in the headlines for a while. Residential boarding schools for Indigenous children. It's not just, you know, here in Grand Junction, but across the state, Canada and beyond. And so going going back a little bit, I think it's... uh, it's probably important to note, like, what was happening at that time in, you know, our country and in Canada? Like, why were these boarding schools in existence? What was going on? What was the culture? What was happening between these two, these two worlds?
1: So the main purpose of the boarding schools was twofold. On the one hand, they were educational institutions and they were teaching uh, native children you know, basic elementary type educations and were given what we would consider in our systems to be a sixth or seventh grade education, up to a sixth or seventh grade education. But um, the main purpose or the the purpose that lay behind the educational purpose was to assimilate uh, Native children into dominant Euro-American culture. The assimilation policies of the of the federal government were um, very very uh, well. Let me pause. <clears throat> okay, um, one of the one of the main goals of the federal government in the mid to late nineteenth century was to assimilate Native people into the dominant culture, and they tried many 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 different ways of doing this. And one of the ideas that was hit upon um, was. Championed by um, Richard Pratt, a man by the name of Richard Pratt, and he's the one who said a quote that we often hear uh, in when we're when we're um, talking about these kinds of issues. His main idea was that the schools were to quote kill the Indian and save the man, right? So end quote. So that meant that the purpose of the schools was to quite literally remove native culture or native ways of thinking and seeing the world from these children and replace that with Euro-American ways of seeing the world. And then ideally, the original plan was that those children would go back to their home reservations and teach other people on the reservations what they had learned. Now, all instruction in these schools was in English. And so one of the first, thing that, first things that had to happen were, was that the children were, um, speaking their native tongues was outlawed. They could not speak their native languages under threat of punishment. And sometimes those punishments were corporal or um, severe in, some, in many ways. And so um, now you have these generations of children who are coming to this campus at a very young age, um, starting you know six or seven, something around there, and they are no longer allowed to speak their language or to dress in ways that are culturally appropriate for them, to worship in ways that are culturally appropriate to them, to play in ways that are culturally appropriate to them, and on and on it goes. And so now when they get back to their to their home reservations, they've lost their linguistic abilities, right? They can no longer speak their, their native language. And they're, they don't belong necessarily to Native culture on the reservations. And so this was, a, this was actually the plan. This was an insidious plan. Because if you take away Native culture from the children, they can't pass it on to the succeeding generations. And so it was quite literally an attempt to wipe out Native ways of being.
0: You said you started your research in 2016. And... You know the the residential boarding schools for Indigenous children. It's in it's in the news and headlines all over the place. And so, I don't. What? Why? Why now? Or does this come up every few years? Is this something that you've seen? Um, this conversation keeps being brought up. Like, what what's sparking this? And is it going to be a conversation that hopefully doesn't die? That it that it something comes out of it?
1: That's a really good question. Um... I think it's always something that sort of comes up every now and again for a number of different reasons. Um, the primary reason being that these boarding schools and the effects of the boarding schools, i.e., having generations of people that were no longer um, able to be culturally competent um, in the ways that you know they had been raised originally, uh, and I'm spe- I'm saying culturally competent in the way that an anthropologist would use this, which is to be a fully you know sort of integrated member of a culture. Um, because that was no longer possible, a lot of the generational trauma and some of the some of the social issues that we see happening on um, reservation lands or in Indian country today, like um, alcoholism and high rates of suicide and um, a lack of um, self-esteem and pride in your in your ethnic um, uh, your ethnic group and so on. Um, a lot of that stems from these boarding school occurrences. And so they really are kind of the nexus of what we see playing out in Native communities to this day. Now, one other reason that they always come up is the fact that they all had, generally speaking, most of them had cemeteries that were attached to them. Now, keep in mind that, again, students were being asked to give up all Indian ways of being, and that included what happened to their corporal remains in death. Right, so they were not even buried or sent back to their families, buried or taken care of in terms of you know death ceremonials uh, that were appropriate for for where they grew up. They were buried in Christian fashion, and so um all these cemeteries are kind of the unspoken part of the boarding schools, and so you will see them crop up in the news when a new cemetery is found or a um, a part of a cemetery that had been had not been mapped previously shows up. Um, so that's happened very recently at one of the more famous boarding schools in the system, Carlisle Academy in Pennsylvania. It's um, one of the schools that has some of the best mapped cemeteries of the Indian School era in the entire country, and yet they were doing um, some. Uh, road construction or, or some kind of construction project on the campus. And lo and behold, they came across a whole section of the cemetery that had not been known about at all. So the same thing happened in Canada very recently at some of the schools that were uh, run by the Catholic Church there. But the cemeteries that they uncovered in British Columbia more recently, you know, in the last couple of months, the cemeteries there count in the hundreds of interred individuals, you know? And so can you imagine, number one, the boarding schools are a, 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 an unhealed wound in native communities. And then to have that wound, you know, ripped open again by the finding of bodies of children, you know, your ancestors, basically, that um, lost their lives to this system and were never returned home. So it's this constant kind of removing of the scab um, in Native communities. and it's um it's just a, a profoundly important thing, important important work that we need to do to make sure that that what needs to happen for these children happen. In Grand Junction, we have a relatively small cemetery. We know of only twenty two individuals who are buried here. But um, again, given what we've seen at Carlisle and at some of the Canadian schools, it is very likely that that number will grow should we find the cemetery.
0: And I I read somewhere (laughs) that you are actually going to look at federal records kept in Washington, D.C. to try to figure out if there are more names on this list. I mean, this is such a hard conversation to have, but I think it's really important. And so I'm glad you're here, but this, yeah, it's, it's hard to talk about it this. Um, but are you, are you going there? Are you going to be looking at records? Have you already done that? Is it, do, are they there? Do they exist?
1: Yes. I've taken one trip to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and I did a week of research literally as a full-time job. I was there from eight to five every day and pulled as many documents as I possibly could about the Grand Junction School. And yet I only barely scratched the surface. There are, pro- there are hundreds of documents that I need to look at that are still there. And um, so I will be going back. The archives are closed right now due to COVID precautions. But um, once they open again, um, you know, I've talked to President Marshall about heading back there, and he's in full support of, of another trip. So hopefully I'll be there for two weeks, maybe more, um, to try to look at every last document that I, you know, can get my hands on.
2: Do you have any other faculty members here at CMU or students or maybe faculty members at other colleges and universities that are helping you in this research? Or is it pretty much you, you're out there, you're
0: trying to get it done on your own?
1: It's pretty much just me right now. Mm-hmm.
0: And you, I mean, you are a, a professor here at Colorado Mesa University, so you do have a, a full time job. You have in it, a so. teaching <laughs> load. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh-huh. Are these conversations that you have in your classroom how what what does that look like? And I, this is kind of a two part question. So, mm. one, what is an archaeologist's role in something like this, and how does that how does that help? Um, with what you're trying to do and to, yeah, what, are, what does your classroom look like? Are you bringing this up? Are you getting your students involved? Are they interested?
1: I'll answer the second question first. Um, that is actually why I know this work is so important. Um, CMU really does service the Western Slope. You know, many, many, many of our students come from the immediately surrounding areas and school districts and including many students from Grand Junction itself. And when I talk about this school in my classes, which I do in most of my classes that, that deal with Native issues, um, I have found maybe two students since 2016 that knew what I was talking about prior to my lectures. You know, So the cultural memory of this institution, at least here on the Western Slope, is almost nil and so the fact, again, that this was a very, very important facility with regard to um, U.S. Native American policy uh, and was a very, very important facility for many tribes that were in the Western states, all of that is being erased and forgotten. And so my one of my primary goals is to make sure that that is not forgotten, is to do whatever I can to enliven the cultural memory of this of this place, um, because to forget about it is to forget about the history of our country, just in general. Um, now, what does an archaeologist have to do with this? Um, I guess because uh, archaeologists are generally tasked with you know, excavating things, and so because this property was going to be sold, there was an idea very early on that there might have to be some excavation or exhumation of the remains and then uh, repatriation of those remains to their respective tribes. As the project has gone on, and as more discussions are being had between tribal cultural representatives and um, members of the Colorado government, as well as various Colorado agencies, um, it looks like we might be working towards, maybe, um, keeping the bodies, or keeping the cemetery intact. And commemorating it and memorializing it there in where, it's, where it lies rather than disturbing the, the, the bodies, um, which, of course, would require many ceremonials and many, many, many hard discussions with tribal cultural preservation offices and, um, you know, repatriation offices. It would be quite a project.
2: So we might be looking at keeping it there. We don't know yet. So as we as we've talked about, this is obviously a, a hard topic to talk about, and you know you're enlightening me. I mean, I've known about it, but the detail that we've been going into has been really enlightening. What is your hope for this research? Because it sounds like this conversation ebbs and flows and comes back in on a national level, on a state level, on a North American level. Mm -hmm. But what is your hope for this project? Or where do you kind of see it going? Where I know we're not gonna find a nice, neat way to tie this up because there's so much hurt and pain and so many years of um, those feelings that we'd need to overcome, but where do you see it going? Or where do you hope that it goes?
1: In my wildest dreams, or what I really hope will happen, is that if the decision is made to keep the bodies there, to keep the graves intact, then I would hope that there would be um, some really nice landscaping work done, some fencing and other kinds of things to create a nice place for people to go and make offerings to their ancestors and, and things of that nature, to allow it to be a memory garden of some nature, you know? And then there are still a couple of historic buildings on the campus. And ideally, I would like at least one of those to be preserved as a sort of museum or interpretation center, just talking about the boarding school experience in general. And I think that this would really be a feather in Grand Junction's cap. You know, it'd be something that people would want to come see to learn about what happened here as well as other places around the country. Um, I don't know of any, um, such museum on the grounds of, a of a former boarding school. There is a similar kind of thing that happened at one of the boarding schools in Nevada, but I'm not entirely sure that that is still open right now as I, as I sit here right now. Um, so I would like that to be the best case scenario. Um, because one ultimately at heart, I am an educator and, um, I would like to make sure, that, again, like that cultural memory doesn't go away um, and to, to have a place where people can get educated about these things. With regard to what actually happens to the, to the graves themselves, I can't really say, I'm not in a position to say, what needs to happen with the graves is what um, their respective tribes wants to happen. So I have, you know, what I think would be a good idea, but if the tribes wish something else, I fully support the tribes in what they want.
0: In in 2019, you took um, a team of cadaver dogs to explore that area. Um, What did you find? What came out of that? And yeah, who was there and and how did that go?
1: So um, based on community rumor and um, a single picture, a historic picture, an aerial photo that showed a small little fenced area towards the rear of the property I thought maybe that that fenced area might be where the cemetery was just because I'd never seen that fenced area before in any photo. And it was just, you know, well, we might as well check that area out. And then there were various community members that said, I remember, or I remember being told that the cemetery is in this other area of the of the campus. And so when I had the cadaver dogs here, I had them for two days. That was it. And, um, that they were brought over by Colorado Forensic Canines out of Denver, they did pro bono work, um, so you know, all my thanks go to them. And um, they came out and targeted those two areas, the the rumored area as well as that area that was fenced in a historic photo. And sure enough, the area that was fenced in the historic photo, two of the dogs uh, signaled that there could be, that could be the location of the cemetery. However. This um, survey was being done in early April, and uh, the ground was still frozen, and you know at least further down, and so that isn't really ideal conditions for cadaver dogs to, for which in which for them to work, and so um, really we need to have them come back and see if they if they hit on that same area again under more suitable conditions, or. As we are working with um, the Colorado Department of Human Services right now to provide potentially um, ground-penetrating radar, which of course would be um, sort of the the final period on that sentence. It, you know, ground-penetrating radar, magnetometry, other remote sensing techniques would almost certainly find those graves.
2: Great. So recently at one of our board of trustees meetings, you were, I believe, surprised with an award that was called the Human Skill University Champion. Can you talk to us about what it felt like in that moment, knowing that you've been spending at least the last five years of your life outside of being a full-time professor doing this research and doing really important work? And how did that feel to receive even just a small recognition?
1: Oh my goodness. It was... um it was a very emotional moment for me. It really was. I, I never, you know, I never thought that this project would result in any kind of recognition. Not that I was seeking recognition. I, w- I just want to do what's right for the children that are buried there and their, their descendant communities. But um, to be recognized by the Board of Trustees and President Marshall, uh, it really did show me that, that this work is very important, um and you know, that the board of trustees are are in support of my work and are in support of um, some of what I want to do out there and and um to have that support of the institution at large and recognition of the importance of the work, I think was just yeah um, I, I just I have nothing but gratitude for it. it's uh it's so um rarely the case that you know, that professors who are always sort of doing our own research you know in our little offices and what have you it's so rare that we tend to get that kind of recognition and so again i'm just so appreciative to to the institution for for recognizing the importance of the work out there and again i i i, I want to think of myself as a as a conduit more than as a you know a researcher with my name on this project i want to i want to consider myself kind of um an instrument by which the right thing is done um, through the state, you know, from, from the state to the native nations involved. Um, but yeah, un, it's unbelievable really.
2: Well, and I'm sure too, because this work you're doing is hard work and it's probably mentally and emotionally taxing at times I would assume. Mm-hmm. And so it's probably nice to have a, you know, somewhat of a bright spot um, to know, like you said, that your research matters and that what you're doing is hopefully going to be making a difference and that the university supports you and, and we see it.
1: It is. It is. Uh, it's, it's so nice. I, I, I don't have words for it. You know, it's just a very I'm, I'm touched. I'm, I never would have expected it.
0: When I can yeah. see you know I think our audience can probably hear you're choking up a little <laughs> bit right now and I can see it you know in the studio here looking at you and I think yeah to to mimic what Caitlin said it's, it is really hard work emotionally physically um, spiritually all on all the levels and so um, it's just been great having you on the show and uh, I do want to give you kind of another shout out because you are kind of this lead expert in the news right now. I mean, anybody talking about this topic is calling you and wanting to hear, you know, what you know about it. What what is that like? What are some of the outlets? What how how has this been kind of getting these phone calls it's, all of a
1: sudden? It also has been a bizarre experience, you know. I've been doing professional archaeology for well, since uh for, well for a long time now, shall we say, since the late nineties. And um and I've never received any kind of recognition for the work that I've done like this, you know? And so to get so many media requests from all over the world is um, really humbling. It's, uh, it's you know, again, there's, a, there's a, a recognition of the importance of this and people do want to know about it. And so I'm so grateful, again, to be in the position where I can help people understand this history and understand the importance of of finding these cemeteries and cataloging these cemeteries and making sure that all Native nations involved are well aware of of the the cemeteries and who's in them. Um, it's just been crazy For a while there, it was, you know, every day, it was two or three media requests in my in, in either on my phone or in my email every day. And um, you know, one of the first ones was this call from uh, from News Nine Denver. Steve Stager called me and said, "We want to have you on the news tonight. Can you, you know, be ready for a, a Zoom interview at this time?" And this was before the semester started, so I was sitting in my office in a t-shirt and whatever. I was like, "Oh my god!" So I had to go and uh, and you know put on a more presentable shirt and actually comb my hair and things. And but that was so much fun, uh, Steve Steve Stager master interviewer. He was a, he was, it was just a fun time to talk to him about these things. And so that was a really nice uh, introduction to the kinds of things that reporters would be asking me. And sure enough, it's gone from, you know, the New York Times to uh, Colorado Public Radio to National Public Radio to, you know, an outlet in, in Australia, you know, it's, it's just the amount of interest is just mind boggling.
0: I love it because we, you know, we're, we're this medium-sized campus over here in Western Colorado and, you know, some people are like, oh yeah, you guys over there in Grand Junction. It's like, yeah, we are full of information, yeah. knowledge, passion, research. Absolutely. Like it's just proof that like, there are so many incredible people over here doing really important work. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one last thing. So archeology span is obviously, th- you know, it, it's a career that it, it people can go into. And so I know, um, we hit on this a little bit off off air, but you have students doing some field work. I do. This semester. Can we just dive into that real quick before we end the show?
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, I came to CMU in um, 2014, and President Foster gave me the charge at that time. He said, I want an archaeologist here to build an archaeology program and to get our students out into the field and give them the skills that they would need to have archaeological careers. And so I took that idea and, you know, that President Foster, this is what he wanted, and I ran with it. And so one of the first things I did here on campus was institute a summer archaeological field school where I could take students out and have them work on actual real projects. And so that's been going since... 2016. We've had a field school almost every year, except for 2020, obviously, um, for, to take students out in the field. And right now, we have this amazing opportunity. We've been given uh, permission to record all of the archaeological sites on a 2,000-acre ranch in Glade Park. And this will be the very first work that's being done in this area. So students are not only out there actually doing the on-the-ground survey and the on-the-ground recording with all of our you know, recording techniques and everything like that, but they are getting to touch, handle, and um, make sense of a place that has never before seen archaeological work. So um, again, the, the opportunity for the students to gain these skills as well as see things that no one has seen before is just really exciting. Um, and we're really, we're really pumped to be there. You know, we were there last weekend. We'll be here. We'll be there again this weekend, um, surveying these enormous archeological sites and trying to figure out what they mean. So, um, it's been so much fun being here at, at, it's CMU and, and building this program. You know, we have all kinds of archaeology classes. Now we've got those fieldwork opportunities, really CMU, um, as we grow even bigger and bigger should be a university of choice for students who'd like to go into archaeology. I think we have exactly what they need here.
0: Well, your passion for, for this field is, uh, is contagious, I must say. I, I want to join your class and me go too. out there <laughs> and yeah, dig some, dig some things up, check it out. I, I mean, it Anytime. really is. It just really is know. inspiring and um, just you're a delight. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's thank you fun. so much. Thank we you. really
0: appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's been great. Thank you.
0: This is the See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts.